You're listening to Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell, bringing theology to life. So we are in the final three chapters of this amazing book that we have been studying. And I hope you'll all agree it's been quite a fun journey going through the book of Revelation, but we are nearing the end of it. However, don't think that we're wrapping up yet. The chapter before us today is actually a pretty involved chapter. Revelation chapter 20 is a very controversial chapter, so I will be taking it extremely slowly. There are some things that we need to really just get into today, some theological issues. I'll try and explain all of my terms and explain what I mean as we go through this, but it is important that you understand this. For no other reason, really, that I think it's important you understand why I believe what I believe, why I'm teaching you what I'm teaching you, and not just to say I disagree with some of the other viewpoints in the church, but also be able to demonstrate to you why I disagree with them. That's instructive for all of us, so that's kind of what we're going to do a little bit this morning. Revelation chapter 20 is one of those chapters that people either completely ignore or there is a lot of ongoing back and forth debate. It does have big implications for what we believe as Christians in a lot of areas. Now, some of you, if you're up to date on these kind of arguments, you'll know what I'm getting at. If you've been with us on Wednesday nights during our Isaiah studies, we've touched on this a little bit because it is in this chapter that we have the mention of the thousand-year rule of Christ. This is otherwise known as the millennium. If you've been around Christianity for a while, you may have heard that term, the millennium. And of course, people have very different views on what this means. We could spend huge amounts of time analysing, critiquing all those different views. That is fun if you're into that sort of stuff, but we're not going to do it quite like that. So I'm going to teach the text, and I will engage slightly with some of these other views just as a way to try and show you what they are, what they believe. I don't want to demean anyone else's views, understanding of theology. Plenty of good people hold these views, but hopefully I can demonstrate why I don't and why I hold the view I do. But we need some context. Let's just remember where we've been up to in the book of Revelation in the final few chapters, because the context always helps you understand the text better. So as we move into this controversial chapter, I want us to make sure that we all have the correct context as we move into it. It will help us understand. We have been dealing with this final period of history, often known as the tribulation, the final period preceding the Lord's return. We've seen, remember, this government that's been set up by this character called the Antichrist, But we've also seen in Revelation 17 and his government has been destroyed. They called it Babylon, the destruction of Babylon. We we dealt with that in a lot of detail. And then we are seeing his final attempt to gather his forces together in Jerusalem. And it says that he will actually gather his people together to fight against the Lord when he returns. And do you remember Revelation chapter 19? That was like the climax of the book, really, in many ways, in some ways. At the last moment, the text records that the heavens were opened and the Lord appeared from heaven riding on the white horse, the armies of heaven following after him on white horses too, and he comes back to tread the winepress of the wrath of God alone. This is that dramatic scene where the Lord returns at the last moment to defeat this character and to return to the earth and set up his kingdom. He comes down as a returning king to reclaim his kingdom. We mentioned the whole scene is intensely regal. It's a royal scene. The white horse, the many crowns, the scepter, and all the subjects that he has following with him. And you remember it says in Revelation 19.6 what he has written on his thigh and on his robe. It says that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. 
that title indicating who he is and what he is coming here to do. He comes down, he returns, it says he sees the beast and the false prophet, and he removes them, throwing them into the lake of fire. So in the chronology, that's where we're up to, really. We studied that last time, and now we move into Revelation chapter 20. It makes sense, if you, if you take the book chronologically, that after that, coming back to earth, removing people who are in his way, he would then set up his kingdom on earth. That, for me, seems to be the most logical understanding of how the book of Revelation works, and that's why I'm teaching it like that. Yet, before he can actually inaugurate his kingdom, this time that the prophets all talk of, this time of peace and prosperity and unmatched blessing on this earth, there are still a few remaining things that he has to do before he can do that, and dealing with Satan is one of those things. So let's look at the first three verses. We'll only do the three verses today of Revelation chapter 20. He says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. So now we see another angel coming down from heaven. Now, as we've gone through this book, at various different times, we've seen that the angels are involved in some of the activities, announcing either the destruction of Babylon or preaching the eternal gospel through the heavens, these sorts of things. So they do have a role here. And again, now we see another one doing this. This one has the keys to the abyss. Now, that's not a new element of this book. If you think back to chapter 9, we, were, we talked about this abyss. In fact, last time we saw an angel come down and open it and allow something to come out of it. It was kind of this maximum security area for angels, basically. That seems to be, implies what it is. That was the best from chapter 9. But now we're seeing it the other way. Satan is himself going to be incarcerated in this prison. And I think it's important to remember that it's another angel that does this. And quite often we, we have this false understanding that you have God and you have Satan, and these two things are like almost opposite equals, good and bad, and they're, they're equal fighting each other. That is not the situation. God is the transcending creator of all. Satan is a created being. Therefore, God does not really have any competition there in that sense. He doesn't even need to come down and do this himself. He just sends another angel who can bind Satan and throw him into the pit. He is not a Satan. is not a counterpart to God. And this, hence we see this angel throwing him into the pit. It says he lays hold of him. And that expression in the Greek is, is, again, it's a term that means to take into custody. So you have this whole prison motif going on here. You have the abyss, which is the prison. The text here then says that this angel takes Satan into custody. It then goes on to say that he is bound and he is shut up and he is also sealed in this pit. So that's sort of a threefold thing there on the, <laughs> what Satan is doing during this period. And then it says, why is this happening? So that he would not deceive the nations any longer. And here is again where we see one of the chief tactics of the serpent of old. You'll notice that throughout the book of Revelation, Satan's called by numerous names, just like Christ is called by numerous names. Names are always very important in the Bible. They give you an indication of character, an indication of activity too. Satan is the dragon, in Revelation, because he's fierce, he likes to destroy people, and you've seen that throughout the book, but he's also the old serpent, 
the one who deceives. And of course, this name is referring us all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis and Revelation, of course, two books, the front end and back end of the Bible, but they are linked. Most of the things you see starting in Genesis, you will see come to completion in the book of Revelation. This title refers you back to that first event that brought all this trouble into this world. We remember the event, the Garden of Eden. God created everything and it was perfect, but then Satan, he who had already fallen, entered this world. He used the serpent to deceive Adam and Eve, having them disobey God and thereby give the dominion that God had given them over the earth. They handed it over to Satan when he did that, and thus all the trouble started. And then immediately after that, remember, we see the first murder and everything goes on like that. This is the answer to why there is death and suffering in the world. That is where it happened. He is the old serpent. This is what we have going on. And that refers to his character of deception. He deceived Adam and Eve. And how did he do that? Actually, he did it by questioning God's word. And this shows us the nature of deception and the nature of lying, basically. Satan himself was called the father of lies by Jesus. In John 8, 44, whilst disputing with the Pharisees, he says, you are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And this shows us the character. This is, again, to contrast the fact that Jesus calls himself the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. These two things contrast. We see one of the tactics of Satan, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. In whose case the God of this world, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthian church, he calls Satan the God of this world, he uses a small lowercase g for that, obviously, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glorious glory of Christ. This shows us again, why does he lie? What's his ultimate purpose? To cause havoc and destruction, obviously, but his main purpose is that, to blind people's eyes to stop them seeing the truth of the light of the glory of the gospel in Jesus Christ. That is his ultimate motivation behind it. And it says also in the Bible that we must be aware of his tactics. 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. This should make us stop and think, because on the one hand, as Christians, we all know, yeah, of course, Satan's bad. Sometimes we don't take it further than that. Think about the nature of deception as it relates to everything, not just with the stuff we're reading in this context here. The nature of deception goes right back to the Garden of Eden. It was a questioning and a challenging of God's word and God's authority, ultimately, in his word. And that is exactly the same as you see him doing it today on most of the issues that we see playing out in our culture. All of those cultural issues, at some point, when you trace them back behind the politics, behind the left-right divide and all those sorts of things, the real divide is between God's word and Satan's word or God challenged, Satan challenging God's word. That is the nature of deception. And unfortunately, too many Christians are willing to accept God's word on some things, but when it comes to other things, maybe they don't accept his word. They accept the, has God really said that? Is that what the text really means? Does life really begin at conception? On and on. You could see all these sort of things going on. I don't want to make political points. Politics is often the death of proper biblical interpretation. But you've got to get behind that and see the nature of deception it will always come back to this issue. God's word or man's word, really, behind that. That is it. That is the true nature of deception. Now, it can be quite confusing. It requires a bit of work sometimes to see these things. The devil is good at this. He's been doing it a long time. 
How do we guard against these schemes? Ephesians 6 verse 11, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. That's it. Now, deception is one of his schemes. He has many others. But the way we stand against these things is the word of God, which absolutely makes sense because if you hear what I'm saying, deception is challenging God's word. So, of course, if you want the truth, you have to go to God's word. The word of God, one of those parts of the armor of God is called the belt of truth. This is the word of God along with all those other parts. Ephesians 6, if you want to track that down, it's a wonderful chapter. So this text implies, and back in Revelation now, that for a period, Satan will be confined and he will no longer have any deceptive influence on the earth. Now that really implies we cannot even really imagine what an earth like that would look like with no deception on the earth, no lies of Satan, no challenging of God's word in the same way that we see going on today. But then it says at the end, and this is the confusing part for many, until the thousand years were completed and after these things he must be released for a short time. Now that's a big until. We've reached this period in the kingdom, it seems, where everything's going to be good, the curse is going to be drawn back, deception's going to be removed from the earth, and then you have this until. The thousand years were completed, he must be released again for a short time. So this indicates to us that this is not the eternal state we're reading about here. This is not the final state where, where Satan is done away with once and for all. He is confined and released again. This is the earthly kingdom, the millennium, whatever you want to call it. And it does imply that this is a reign on earth. It says Satan will be loosed. The purpose, we're not actually given huge amounts of details for why this is, why he is loosed again at this time. For me, I believe it's probably most likely to demonstrate that he has not changed to demonstrate that he has not been reformed during his incarceration, during this time. As soon as he is allowed out again, he sets about trying to deceive the nations again. The nations who have not used to deception at this point, they've been living under the righteous reign of Christ. He wants people to follow him. He is that devil of old from the beginning, and he proves his true characters. And in that way, he's really writing his own death warrant at this point, because he's about to be dealt with once and for all. But that's a thousand years later. So... I've said this period of a thousand years quite a few times already. Let's deal with this a little bit. We've read it twice just in these first three verses. If you have your Bibles open, if you go just sort of skim through the next verses, you'll notice that this period of a thousand years is mentioned six times in the next seven verses, almost once a verse it is mentioned. The repetitive emphasis seems to imply that this is an important period of time. It's like the writer is trying to make a point. He wants to emphasize something about this thousand-year period, namely that it's a thousand years, I believe. Now, how you interpret this passage gives you a good clue of what you believe about what Christians call eschatology. Don't get confused by that word. That is simply the word that means the study of the end times. This, how you interpret these thousand years will also show what you believe about God's kingdom. I want to try and break it down for you. If this is the first time you've heard some of this, don't worry, just take what you can. It's important, I feel, as you move on, you need to understand some of these things. The word millennium, you've probably heard me say that, let me break that down for you. It's really just two Latin words together. The Latin word milli, which means 1,000, and the word annum, which means year. Put them together, 1,000 years. That's where it comes from. A lot of our theological terms are Latin because for most of, the, most of the, that's, you know, during the formation of theology in Western civilization, Latin was the language. But it's an unfortunate term, actually, because 
the real word should be the kingdom. This is really what it's referring to, the kingdom. Millennium is what we use because of this thousand-year period, but throughout the Bible, it's really called the kingdom. There are many different views. I want to outline them for you now, just so you understand really why I hold my view and why I disagree with some of these other views. So the first view is called pre-millennialism. Again, don't worry about the big words. Basically, millennium, so the thousand years, and pre means before. This is the view that I teach, that I hold, and this is the view we've been expounding as we've gone through the book of Revelation. It means that Christ returns before that thousand-year kingdom age. And I think that's the most natural reading as we've been going through Revelation, as we've just read in Revelation chapter 19. He just comes back, and then we're going to see he sets up his kingdom. It seems quite obvious. If you take the text at face value, that means that you just read it and accept what it means. This is the view that naturally arises from the text. Okay, there's no way around that. That if you take the text, even people who disagree with this view admit that if you take the text according to what it says, this is the view that comes from the text. So that is the first view. The second view, amillennialism. A meaning just no, basically. So what they believe is that there is no literal earthly reign. So they don't, this idea that this King Christ is going to come back and set up his kingdom on this earth, they don't believe that. They believe that the kingdom is completely spiritual in nature. And thus they would say that Christ is already reigning over his kingdom right now through the church. This means that Satan is already bound, according to the text we've just led. And the thousand years is not an actual thousand years. It is just a symbolic period of time representing the age of the church, basically. Anthony Hokima is a leading theologian. He holds this view, sums it up very nicely for us. As far as the thousand years of Revelation 20 are concerned, we are in the millennium now. Okay, understand what he's saying. So this is what we call kingdom now. He believes we are in the kingdom now. And I want you to know these because if you've been a UK Christian for any period of time, this is the vast view that most people hold in this country. There is one more view, post-millennialism. Again, big word just means thousand years, post meaning after the thousand years. So what this basically believes is that Christ will return after a golden age on earth. This thousand years, again, is not an actual thousand years. It's just an unspecified period of time during the church age. They teach that during this age, things are going to get better and better and better as the gospel spreads over the whole world basically leading to this beautiful kingdom, and when the kingdom is finally ready, they'll hand it over to Christ and he'll come back to receive it. Uh, it's not so popular today. It was very popular just before the outbreak of World War I and World War II. Of course, seeing the devastation that, that that did to the world, it was very hard to maintain this sort of a view, and it became not very popular. However, it has had a resurgence in recent years amongst very charismatic movements in the church who believe that through signs and wonders they're going to reconstitute this kingdom and give it to Christ. You would have encountered that again if you're from some of the if you've been to any of the larger charismatic denominations in this country. Now most people are amillennial slash postmillennial. I'll explain why that is in a while. You have to understand the history. You know I nerd out on history. Some of you don't like history so much, I understand that, but it's important to set the context here. But as you can see, the difference is really one of interpretation, isn't it? 
Do you take the thousand years to be an actual thousand years, or do you read that and say that's just an unspecified period of time to be a symbol? When it says that Satan is bound during this period, like we just read, is that actually mean that he's shut up and locked away, or is that just some sort of allegory saying that he's restricted in some ways? And it, there's other issues too. It talks about Israel being center of this kingdom. Does that mean Israel, or does that mean the church? Most people believe it is the church. All of these things go on. So what I want to look at briefly now is how did we get to that state of affairs where you can read the Bible like that and put these other meanings onto the text? Most of you have probably just experienced that that is what most of the church believes and you don't even really question it. But I want us to go back through a little bit of history to show you, and I'm doing this really so that when I teach you the premillennial viewpoint, I don't want you just to say, that's what my pastor believes. That's really no good for anyone. I want you to understand why that view has its foundation in the Bible and in history and that you can explain it yourself if you need to. So, for the first three centuries of the church, so think back all the way 2,000 years ago, we have the, the resurrection of Christ, the day of Pentecost after that, that is the beginning of the church. And then for 300 years, so after the, all of the apostles, the first century, the second century church fathers, for all of that time, they accepted the view that I teach premillennialism. Almost everyone accepted that the kingdom was to be set up on earth after Christ returns at some point. And many of those people who believed that sat under the apostles themselves. Here's just a list of few of the early church fathers who were premillennial. Papias, Polycarp, Clement, Irenaeus, Hippolytus, Barnabas, and Justin Martyr. We have quite a lot of writing from some of these people. We know what they believed on these issues in certain areas anyway. And some of these people were, in fact, disciples, like I said, of the apostles themselves. I think it's quite telling that all of them were premillennial. That in itself is a very strong reason, I believe, for the viewpoint that I teach. And this is one of the reasons why I hold it, one of the historical reasons anyway. So what happened? If that was what they believed for the first three centuries, what happened to get to the situation where not many people believe it today? And this is where the history comes in, so bear with me. As Christianity spread, it started in Jerusalem, didn't it? All of the apostles were Jewish, and slowly it spread out to Judea and Samaria and then to the uttermost parts of the world. That was always what it was supposed to do. But one of the things that that did, it meant that other people were getting saved who didn't have all this background in the Old Testament these pagan Romans all around that area, they were all getting saved, they were coming into the church, but what they did is they brought with them their different cultural backgrounds, their different ways of reading texts, their different philosophies, they brought Greek philosophy into the church. And they also brought anti-Semitism into the church. The Greco-Roman world hated the Jewish people in many ways, and they brought that into the church with them too. And this caused the church to shift Whereas when it started off, Jesus and the apostles were Jewish, and it had that Jewish flavor, as more and more Gentiles added to the church who were actually starting to resent the Jews because of their anti-Semitism from the Roman world, they severed themselves from the Jewish roots of the faith. So they started interpreting the Bible differently. That was one reason. So have that in one, one section there. Another reason is politics, as it often is. Around this time, about the 3rd, 4th century, Constantine, 
emperor, Constantine the Great, the Roman emperor, he decided that Christianity was not something that he wanted to eradicate from his empire like emperors before him. He decided that it would actually be good if he accepted Christianity and made it the official state religion of the Roman Empire. And he had his conversion experience. I don't believe it was genuine. He remained a very wicked man right up until the day of his death. But he used it because it benefited him at that time. Of course, it came with a number of problems too. Now, everyone saw, well, the emperor's a Christian. We better be Christians too. Although we've got you know, hundreds of years of existing pagan practices that we're not willing to get rid of, what we're going to do now is we're just going to put Christ on the top of that, we're going to claim that we're Christian, and the emperor will be happy with us, and that's pretty much what happened. So you had that going on too. And if you can think about the problems with that, the Roman Empire was very powerful. They were very rich, they were very wealthy, they controlled pretty much everything, and therefore, according to that view, the church now controlled, was wealthy, was powerful, and did what the Roman Empire did. That line between religion and politics was blurred and brought together, and that, like I said, has always had horrible consequences. Another man came along called Augustine. You ever heard of him? If you've been a Christian a long time, you may have heard of him. Very famous theologian, probably one of the most influential people in the Western world. Much of what we believe about many things in the Western world and Western civilization comes from Augustine. You ever heard nations debating about whether it's just to go into a war? That all comes from him. Just war theory, all these sorts of things come from Augustine. He was very influential. However, what he did is he really took that amillennial view, so that view that I talked about there, that there's no actual physical kingdom, the church is the kingdom, it's all spiritualized. He systematized that and made it extremely popular and... During the time, remember, the Roman Empire, who was the Roman church, now at this point too, wanted a, they liked that view. They thought that, that could work. We could use that, so we'll take that view, and we're now going to make that the official view of the entire Roman Empire slash Roman church at this time. And that is pretty much what happened, and it remained like that for the next thousand years. The Roman Catholic Church, which was the remainder of the Roman Empire after the empire crumbled, as you know, history, they spread everywhere, particularly across Europe, and this is what they taught. So that, that is it. That's how it became so dominant across Europe. It was through the influence of the Roman Catholic Church, but it was not always like that in the beginning. Now, this is also important to know apologetically. If you've ever debated in our secular culture, you've probably heard the accusations come against the church. What about all the atrocities that the church has committed? And they give you these examples of you know, atrocities in Europe, spreading forced conversions on people and things like that. Well, the answer to that is, that was this period of history, and it was part of this theological belief. Think about it with me. If the church sees itself as the kingdom of God, as the Roman Catholics did, they interpret all of those prophecies about ruling and reigning with a rod of iron to be now... They say that they should be reigning as kings now because that's what's going to happen in the millennium, which is now. Then why shouldn't they forcefully spread their beliefs across the nations? And why shouldn't they force people to convert if they don't? And that is basically what happened throughout the Roman Catholic era at this time. So it's important to be able to answer that because that is why I stand against this theology. I think it has horrible consequences. It's a mixing of politics and religion, and historically it's been bad, and it's not in the Bible, as far as I'm concerned. So that is one of the re another reason why you had this going on there. 
Now, bring us up to the 15th, 16th century, the time of the Reformation. They pushed back against all of these abuses of the Catholic Church. That's much of our history in this country. You've just watched, haven't you? Well, soon you will watch the coronation of a new king. I read to you that oath of the previous king, where the, the queen was made to take the oath that said she will establish the Protestant religion. All of that goes back to this period of history too, because we separated from the influence of the Roman Catholic Church with the Reformation. So all of, everything is related at some point back to this period of history. It's very interesting to do. The reformers pushed back, and they corrected a lot of good stuff. They corrected all of huge amounts of errors that the Roman Catholic Church had, but one area that they never touched was this issue of the final days, the end times, the eschatology. They didn't correct that. All they did was simply accept what Augustine taught, which is what the Roman Catholic Church taught, so they kept that. So that's why you'll see around the world today, most people who are Reformed come from Reformed churches. They are generally amillennial. There's a few pleasant exceptions, but generally they still hold to the view that amillennialism has. And most of our churches, the Anglican Church, is a Reformed church, Protestant church in many ways. Therefore, most Anglicans are still amillennial. And most of them don't really know, from what I can tell, a lot of Christians just don't study this sort of stuff, so they're not sure. And most charismatics that is developed from this, they are probably post-millennial. So that's just a very, very short overview of church history there. Sorry, a lot of people would say that's really painting with a broad brush. It is because I've tried to do it in 20 minutes, so give me a bit of grace there for summarising certain things. So what happened to premillennialism? Obviously, when it was not mandated to be the state religion, it kind of died a death. It went underground. There was always a few people that held to it, but when the Reformation started, although generally they didn't correct it, there were people that started reading the Bible. A big part of the Reformation was we want to read the Bible for ourselves. And like I said, this premillennial view comes from the Bible, so when people start reading the Bible, it's only natural that you'd see this view start to appear back again, which is exactly what happened. 17th, 18th, 19th century, you had a big revival of premillennialism, particularly into the 20th century in America, actually, during parts of the, the fundamentalist movement, and still has a big influence in the church today. So that, again, just finishes off. It is still here uh, in this view, and obviously you've got churches like us <laughs> that are coming from that that still hold to this view as they did in the early church. So that's a rough view. I'm not quite done yet. I do want to show you how this affects your interpretation of Revelation 20. So we just read those texts, didn't we? Satan being bound with a chain, being thrown into the abyss so he could no longer receive, deceive the nations. Think about this. If you are an amillennialist and you believe we're in the kingdom now, you have to believe that Satan is bound because the text says it very, very clearly and he can't deceive the nations. That presents you with a problem when you look around the world today. It does, like that, and it's, you know, we all laugh at that, but this is a big problem. I want to read you just a few comments from leading theologians now who are amillennial to show you how they try and explain away this particular problem. First one is B.B. Warfield, second one is Matthew Poole. These are the sorts of commentaries you'll find in pretty much every theological library. Warfield says, The binding of Satan is therefore in reality not for a season, but with reference to a sphere. And its loosing again is not after a period, but in another sphere. It is not subsequence, but exteriority. 
There is indeed no literal binding of Satan to be thought of. What happens, happens not to Satan, but to saints, and is only represented as happening to Satan for the purposes of the symbolical picture. Now, what actually happens is that the saints described are removed from the sphere of Satan's assaults, and the saints described are free from all access to Satan. He is bound only with respect to them. Now, if you didn't understand what that means, nor did I. I'm serious. <laughs> I've read it a lot of times. I, had, I struggled to understand what it meant. And that's because it's very hard. He's trying to explain away what the text clearly says, basically. Matthew Poole, he says this, A thousand years, whether these thousand years signify that certain space of time or a long time, I cannot say. Only it is probable that it signifies an uncertain, indefinite time. Now think about this. The text says a thousand years six times in seven verses. <laughs> I don't see how it could be more clear. He goes on, the thousand years only denote a large space of time when the church of God shall freely enjoy their liberty without such temptations to idolatry, superstition, or wickedness. That's what he, you know, is that an accurate representation of 2,000 years of history? It's not. The pulpit commentary. I have this commentary set. This is a, it's a very well-used commentary in many circles, probably from the few generations back, to be honest. But it says this, but it must be remembered that the thousand years do not express a period of time, but the quality of completeness. Therefore, the loosing of Satan must not be supposed to take place in a period subsequent to the period of the binding. The seer wishes to describe the devil in a twofold character, so subordinating the second to the first. And he thus says, by Christ's redeeming work, Satan is bound and fettered in regard to faithful Christians, but there is also a second subordinate fact to remember, that at the same time he is powerful in his natural sphere among his own adherents. Again, I couldn't explain to you exactly what he means by that, but this is the sort of problem that you get when you don't take the scriptures for what they say when you try and interpret them to fit your particular viewpoint, at some point the Bible doesn't allow you to do that and you have to end up coming up with theories like this. It is very hard to argue that Satan is bound today in the church age. All you need to do is have a cursory look at the Bible and a look around the world with your own eyes, basically. Let me give you some examples. In Acts 5, chapter 3, it says that Satan filled the heart of Ananias to lie to the Holy Spirit. That's an act of Satan. 2 Corinthians 4, Paul said that Satan is blinding the eyes of unbelievers so that they could not see the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, Paul told the Corinthians that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light for the purpose of deception. Ephesians 2.2, 2, he calls Satan the prince of the power of the air that now works in the sons of disobedience, indicating positive action. Ephesians 4.27, he says, do not give place to the devil. Ephesians 6, verse 12, he calls the devil that we are wrestling with the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, the devil and his followers. 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter warns believers to be sober, vigilant, because their adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And 1 John 5, 19, John tells us that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one during this age in many ways. On and on we could go with examples like that. It's very hard to make that argument, let alone everything we've read in Revelation moving up to this point. So, I believe it is a better option, a more simpler option to be frank. The better option is just to understand that we take the scriptures at face value and you come with the view called premillennialism. This is the view that there will be a physical kingdom age 
inaugurated by Messiah after his second coming, as the book of Revelation clearly teaches. One more charge that people say is, you only get that from the book of Revelation. Revelation 20 is your only verse that teaches about the millennium. That's the final thing that people say. And whilst it's true, it's the only text that gives us the duration, the concept is found throughout the entire Bible. In fact, I really don't know how you understand the Bible without having this concept of a kingdom. Let me read to you a few scriptures. Jeremiah 23, verse 5 to 6. Premillennialism is rooted in the prophets and the covenants of the Old Testament. That's what you need to remember. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely. Christ hasn't reigned as king yet. He will do justice and righteousness in the land, and in his days Judah will be saved, Israel will dwell securely, and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. This is the divine king, the righteous branch of David, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, and it speaks about him doing righteousness in the land when Israel will be saved securely, and he is also divine, it says. This awaits, this is going to be fulfilled in that time that we're reading about now in Revelation. The book of Zechariah speaks of this time too. In that day there will be no light, the luminaries will dwindle. It will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about that at the evening time there will be light. This is referring to the time of trouble that we've been studying throughout the whole book of Revelation. He then says, in that day living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea, half towards the western sea. It will be in summer as well as in winter. And then look at that verse. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. The king will be lord over all the earth. That righteous branch will be ruling over all the earth. This very much seems to imply a kingdom ruling on this earth. It's not just the Old Testament. The New Testament confirms this for us too. At the annunciation of his birth, the, announce, the announcement sorry, of his birth, the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb, bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus. And then look at what he will do. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. Not his father's throne, the throne of his father, David. That's his earthly throne from Jerusalem. And then it says he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. So you even see these promises at the birth of Christ in the New Testament. It is foundational to the story of the Bible, and that's why I know we've had a bit of a digression from our, our journey through Revelation, but I wanted to lay this down with you because it real, really it, it impacts everything that we're going to study or have studied and that we do teach in this church. The only really thing that Revelation gives us extra in this passage is the duration. And if you remember a few weeks ago, studying the second coming, I argued that one of our grounds for believing in those second coming prophecies was the fact that we can look back and see how all of the first coming prophecies had been literally fulfilled. But if you're willing to suddenly say the second coming prophecies are not going to be literally fulfilled as they're written, they're going to be fulfilled in some other spiritual way, then you're actually undercutting your foundation for believing in the promises. You can no longer use that argument that I gave you that is such a strong argument for why we believe in the second coming. It's very important. And again, that's why I wanted to spend a bit of time doing this. So now, in Revelation, we are at the period right before the kingdom begins. The king has returned, and he is 
cleaning shop, basically. He's getting rid of all of these people who are challenging him, Satan, the beast, the false prophet. And once he has done that, he will then set up his kingdom, which we will see as we move through. The king is back. He's removing those obstacles, chiefly Satan. And next week, we'll see that he turns his attention to the people who will be ruling with him at that time, which is another massive theme in the Bible. Let's pray. You've been listening to Theology and Apologetics. This podcast is supported by your generous donations. To help us continue to bring you great content, please visit our Patreon site at patreon.com slash theologyandapologetics. If you've been blessed by this podcast, please leave us a review and remember to connect with us on social media. For more resources, please go to theologyandapologetics.com. Thanks for listening.